Hello, welcome to the Collect podcast from the Crafts Council. Today, Craft Meets Interiors as we discuss the relationship between craft and design in our third episode, Crafted for Living. You'll hear from interior designer Fiona Barrett-Campbell, woven textile designer Margot Selby, and designer Karina Warm, hosted by Crafts Magazine editor Grant Gibson. You can still buy tickets for Collect, which is held at the Saatchi Gallery in London, from the 2nd to the 6th of February. Just visit collect17.org.uk. Um, <laughs> let's, talk about, let's talk about the relationship between uh, craft and design, first and foremost. Because uh, before I took craft's job, nearly a decade ago, I spent 10 years working for design magazines like FX and Blueprint and that kind of thing. Um, we never talked about craft. Craft was not a word that was ever really discussed. And if it was, it was kind of sniggered about. Uh, it seems to me this has obviously changed. So I'm keen to hear from you guys kind of your relationship with design and craft and why do you think it changed? And Fiona, this is your studio. <laughs> I'm going to start with you. Um, I think it's it, where I am, we're sort of high end residential and commercial, so it's sort of it's luxury, everything's super luxury, very beautiful, and it's <clears throat> it's actually going back to the roots, you know, it's, there's all the, oh, you, you're buying furniture and there's lots of it and you can see around the world and, you know, these very wealthy people are now looking for something that is, is different. You know, you can see there's big furniture brands everywhere and it's, it's almost overexposed and people are wanting something that actually takes them back to the roots and, and differentiates them from other people as well, and I think that's where craft has come back into it. People want not mass production, but they want artisanal mm. production. They want to um, have an attachment to a piece, even though it's new, they want that attachment. They want to be able to see the photographs of it being made in a beautiful artisanal surrounding, and it, and it has a provenance. It's a new piece, but it has a provenance. So it's, it's what I call sort of a new age antique. Okay, so uh, what we're saying is that, that uh, let's say, for sake of argument, the big Italian manufacturers, B&B Italia, Casina, the kind of stuff that people who had interiors that you would design for maybe 20 years ago, they don't want that so much anymore because it's been overexposed, it's been over-mediated, is this what yeah, we're they, saying? Yeah, they, they want, they're very selective. I think sort of 20 years ago, the internet wasn't where it was. So we didn't have social media, we didn't have as many publications, whereas now everything is very much overexposed. Mm. It's globalization has gone crazy and people are now, they are going back to their roots, mm. essentially. Mm. Karina, can we, can we turn to you? Because I mean, obviously you, you have a background in uh, product design. You've worked with the likes of Tom Dixon, you work with Jay and Ed, Barbara Osgaby. Uh, and I'm just wondering where your relationship with, with craft started. Mm -hmm. I suppose, um, yeah, my background is in product design. I did a degree in at Cedrus and Martins, College of Art and Design. A real turning point was um, working for David Lindley, a uh, royal cabinet maker, uh, and as part of their design team, where I really learned to appreciate, obviously, craftsmanship and traditional uh, cabinet making skills. And, um, the materiality and the beauty of using natural materials. When I set out to start Studio Warm, I very much wanted to take on and work in with craftsmen who would obviously work um, superbly in, in these in traditional techniques, mix it with new contemporary techniques and, and create something 
much more contemporary to what I was obviously working uh, with and exposed um, through uh, David Lindley. So um, at Studio One, we, we're not makers as such, but we, I suppose, work with and curate um, our pieces and work with talented craftsmen throughout the country. Um, and what's really important to us is that every piece is very unique and uh, creates and tells a story. And um, therefore, we seek out individual finishes, and we really want to create something that's long-lasting. Um, and yeah, for each individual project, we would then seek out a craftsman who could work in that area. So if we did a bespoke light, for example, we had a, a piece uh, we did for a client recently. He was working in pharmaceuticals. So we worked with a craftsman who uh, works with borosilicate glass, so labware, basically, to create something truly unique to the client, which, again, I suppose what Fiona was saying, you, that way you can create something that's truly personal and it's individual to the client's taste and therefore not something that you'd find in stores such as Green Beach or... I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested in your CV uh, for all kinds of reasons, but, but one of them being this move from the kind of Tom Dixons who you work for in the Barbara Oscars, the Yuzumis, to Lindley. I mean, that's quite a jump. And I, I'm just wondering why you took that jump. I suppose I, um, I really was intrigued in what they were doing and working with uh, craftsmen, as I said. Um, it was interesting as such because I, I was approached by the um, uh, creative director at the time, uh, who I'd met through Barbara Bee and uh, David Begg at Tom Dixon, actually. And um, I was initially part of their, I suppose you could almost argue, con more contemporary uh, design side uh, in that uh, I was designing for their stores and uh, they were looking to launch a more contemporary design collection as well as an entry level collection I suppose um, to a new customer uh, for Linley as well and obviously from there on so that was the new product development team I also worked across uh, the bespoke team and interior design team. Okay, Margot come to you. You've been sitting there very patiently. And, and you, you come from a slightly different angle, I guess, in that I, one would imagine that you, you're more from the, the crafts world, but you also obviously design. So have you noticed, have you noticed this I suppose kind of like when I, when I meet people outside of the craft world and people ask me what I do, I say I'm a woven textile designer. Right. That's but interesting. Why, why? Why do you do that? Because I design lots of products which are made for me and then and, and sold and distributed by other people. Right. So I am designing often. But I couldn't design unless I knew how to make. So I couldn't I couldn't be a designer if I didn't know the craft and if I hadn't spent several years understanding what happens when you put different materials together or what happens when you treat the loom in this way. Um, and so I don't believe you can be a, a designer without having some craft skills. That's quite interesting. I think that's a provocation. Can, <laughs> can, can we pick up on this, Fiona? Do you, do you agree with that? <clears throat> no, I do. So when, <clears throat> when my husband had the bright idea of um, saying you really need to have your own furniture range yeah. um, several years ago, I said, OK, fine. So we undertook the enormous task of prototyping, designing first of all, and then prototyping an entire range. And I'd you know, been in the industry 10 years, I've been to quite a few um, factories and workshops and seen how things were put together. But I had no idea 
until I actually started this process. And we spent days and weeks in factories, and it's you know how things are put together. It's the weights, like you say, certain materials won't work with other materials. You know, when you veneer boards, you've got to cross veneer it on the other side, and all these other things. And we we have a console which is um, cast bronze, and it has these small sort of striations in in the cast bronze. And the foundry said to us, if you, we had a mold that we made first, and they said, if you make these um, grooves in the mold more than three to four millimeters deep, they will not cast. Now, that guy had been in the foundry 40 years, and without that knowledge, it, it would have, that piece would have failed. I think that's, that's um, one of the things that I think that I've learned to really respect when I get things produced and made is that, the, the manufacturers and the mills that I'm working with are absolute excellent craftspeople. They, you know. But, 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 isn't it? I mean, I've interviewed like gazillions of designers over the years, yeah. and they always walk in, and their line when they talk about factories is, well, they've been doing it this way for years and years and years, and this bloke, and he said it wouldn't work, but we pushed him, we pushed him, and eventually it did. Is that, I mean, that. It's a collaboration. That, yeah, there's a definitely a collaboration. Yeah. You learn from them, you learn yeah. what their boundaries are, and then you learn. You, you, you advise them or inform them with your design ideas, which will help to push their production potential into make, to make something new. But design is evolution, so it is all about trial and error. And you've got to push them to try it to find out the errors, and sometimes it will work. But you, do, you have to push them to take the next step. But you have to you know, take on board the what you know the advice that they they're giving you and the expertise they're imparting yeah, yeah. and from, from my point of view making you know my ideal way of working would be to spend five years developing something over time slowly in the background and then having you know warp after warp after warp of experimentation mm. until i get to something which i know i can take to a mill and say if you do it like this and you use this fiber at this set you might get an, an, a result that's similar to this so all you know it's that development time that they don't have time for that as a craftsperson you can bring to them um, but presumably do you design differently if you're creating something for it's going to be produced for habitat than you do for your own shop how does that work um, one of the things that i've learned is to tr if i'm working for other brands as well as my own is to really try to make sure that there's a point of difference with what i'm doing for them so the last couple of years i've been working with west elm and they're a fantastic brand because they've got real, true, ethical kind of ways of working. And they're trying to support craftspeople around the world to make sure that traditional crafts um, stay alive. They're keeping really strong villages of weavers going in India, which could have all dissipated into call centres and IT because they're paying them really well. They they're helping to support Could schools. they not be using weavers in England? How does that work? Well, I mean, first of all, West Arm's American anyway. Okay. But <laughs> hand, hand weaving in production has already Migrated. died died here. Yeah, okay. So, but there is still hand weaving, and it's you know families and it's amazing skills that we've actually lost a lot here, and they're preserving those. And so it's been wonderful to work with them, and you know, for my own brand, I might like to work with mills here. Um, and that's a different story. So it's finding a point of difference when you're working for a different brand. Corinne, mm. you worked in, I mean, loads of materials, brass, timber, metals, all sorts of things. Um, do you find yourself pushing the craftsman? How, does, how is your relationship with the craftsman you work with? And how do you select them? 
How did you find well, that? Um, we do still uh, say work with quite a few people that were introduced uh, through David Lindley, but we do seek out, as I said, uh, new craftspeople all the time, depending on uh, the brief we're working on and the material we want to work with. This is often through recommendation, uh, through other craftspeople, or we literally go and seek them out and, and go and visit them and talk to them and obviously um, talk to them about our ideas and, and see what can be achieved. And I think that really is what I find probably the most exciting thing of the direction my business has taken in that we are not just a design studio that sort of works in front of the computer, but we very much have the direct contact with the craftspeople. We go to their workshops, uh, we see our piece in production and throughout obviously, um, the development until it's finished, and um, we communicate with the craftspeople along the way. Um, and, and, it's, and it's beautiful, and, and as you both said, there's pe these are people who have worked in their field and craft for so many years, and it's impossible specifically working in so many different materials to know everything, but uh, we very much welcome um, their knowledge and, and take, take their experience on board. You two differ a little bit in the way that you work, in, in that you talk about the craftiness, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, you talk about the, the, the stuff that is handcrafted, mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily talk about provenance in quite the same way that you do, Fiona, where you're very big on Northumberland or, or where, where you came from, and you're uh, obviously. And, and so, is, I mean, what I guess I'm, I'm going to allude to is, is this sense of provenance, is this anything more than a kind of a quasi-marketing tool? It isn't, it isn't. I'm, you know, growing up in Newcastle, there's a, I was very fortunate to have a privileged background, but there's a lot of people in this, this area of the world who don't. And there's a lot of very talented people who have their second generation in industry, and these industries have died out because there's been no government investment, there's no new firms coming in. And for me, it was, I want to give something back to these people, you know, really good people who know what they're doing. And that, for me, that is the provenance of the piece, mm. is who has made it and the history behind it and I'm, the furniture brand is very much inspired by Roman history and Roman architecture, Roman artefacts, everything that I grew up around, um, all of these world heritage sites in Northumberland and that is really important to me and that's a story and that, that is a part of me and it's just, it's very strong and I wanted, I wanted to have that as part of the provenance of the brand and we have 1,200 production shots and we have those on a catalogue and in the website and it's been a really great tool for actually people to understand because nowadays we are very much a disposable market. It's like, how quickly can we get this? How quickly can we dispose of it and get something else? And it was like, actually, no, I want to slow people down. I want them to understand, yes, this is a very expensive piece of furniture, but I want them to truly understand what goes into this, the mm. processes that go into it, because it is actually fascinating. And the, the two chairs at the back that we have there, I don't know if people see them in the teal, um, but that base is, is cast bronze, and it was done with the lost wax technique. And I mean, sat on the foundry floor with pieces of string and little beads, creating those bases. I mean, it, it's just intricate work. And we actually filmed this, and we I think the, the video is on our website, but it's just, it's showing people that actually, yes, it's expensive, but this is, this is what has gone into it. This is the man hours that gone into it. This is the 20 years of skills that have gone into it from the upholsterers, the cast, <coughs> you know, the, the foundry, the woodworking mm. shop, the carpentry. And I think it, it's important to tell a story. So are the pieces therefore informed by the skills that you found 
when you went back home or no, did actually, you have the designs and, I and find the, designs, the makers yeah, to... Yeah, I had the designs. And, you know, we are using um, metal workers who work on the banks of the Tyne who were in their day making parts for um, British steel for warships. Um, and that's a great story. You go into the factory, you've got these guys who are just, they're sort of so weathered, their hands are like shovels. And I, you know, here's this girl who was a Geordie in London, you know, walking <laughs> off the street with my designs. I'm like, please, you know, you need to do this. And at first they don't take you seriously, but you know, for them it's something, it, you're giving them a new lease of life as well. They've been producing so many sort of mundane items mm. For so long, and well, until, you, until you walked in, what were they? What were they making? Because they presumably they're not making warships anymore. No, they were, were producing huge parts, so big plates. They were producing nuts and bolts. The uh, the bolts were nine <coughs> foot, and they've got the moulds for these nine foot bolts. Just off the scale. And here I'm asking them to make a small leg for my for my side table. Um, and it, it was quite nice, actually, at the end to show them a picture of the finished piece because they're making an element of it, and they don't. They, they just didn't get it in the beginning, but then they see the finished piece and they're like, oh, I'm never going to get to make something like that again. So I've enriched their lives. So to go back to your question, it is extremely important to me. I'm very passionate mm. about that. Mm. Good. Yeah. Um, can we talk about your, you have a kind of service where you work for hotels and architects and, and presumably designers like Fiona and, and, and how does that relationship work? Well, that's over the last few years I've been... When, when I started, I was always passionate about making fabric. Mm. And I got, got a setting up grant from the Crafts Council when I first graduated. And um, the most obvious medium to sell fabric as was accessories because I was young and I didn't know what else to do. But my passion was always, always fabric. And I think one of the most exciting things over the years has been the collaboration. And so seeing how other people can use my fabric. And um, so over, over the last five or six years, I've been working much, much more in interior design. Um, and so we create sort of suggest suggestion pieces suggestion textiles and and then people can look at those and direct me and collaborate with me and um, try and create something which is unique and bespoke for them. When you're making a suggestion piece are you making it with a potential designer in mind I wonder? No we make... Are thinking I can I, see I this hotel's going to open? I definitely, I definitely try to make things which which I really love and I'm always I'm still very excited by the technical side of craft so I'm I'm excited like you are with the materials you know how to create a different surface, how to create an interesting transparency. So all those kind of technical developments are usually what drive me. And then I also, because I am quite commercial in the way I think, I try to respond to my customers in mm. terms of the palettes that they like. Um, but then I'll always throw in some of, some of my own kind of more unusual palettes because that excites people, even if it's not what they'll end up buying. Mm. When you left the Royal College, was it your intention to scale up? Did you always want to be working at that scale or, or did you want to...? Um, I think it's been really exciting yeah. to uh, blow the scale of the designs up and that's what I've been doing more recently. I think when you're making something, especially textiles, you tend to be right up close to it. And actually, when you walk into a hotel lobby, you're seeing it from you know, quite a distance. And so it's, it's remembering to look at your work from afar and um, realising the impact that it has from a distance, as well as it being beautiful when you get close up. What about this, the, that notion of kind of letting go, which you see a lot of craftsmen, craftspeople, makers have, 
the sense that they've been making everything themselves and yeah. eventually they reach a point where actually they can't. I think it is, it's always difficult, you know, when you start to, and like you were talking about all the craftspeople that you work with, um, I've also got craftspeople, we, we, we employ craftspeople outside, but we've also got, I've got three other weavers in mm. my studio. And, you know, when I first used to let people weave on my warps, I, f I found it very difficult, quite possessive over them. Um, but then when you see them grow and when you start to get a rapport with another weaver and you can see how your ideas can grow together, that's really lovely. And they're growing with their skills and that feels like we're keeping weaving alive here as well. And do you, have, do you work with people who uh, possibly bring things to your designs that you haven't definitely, expected? Definitely, definitely. Okay, mean, and can you give me an example of, of how that works? Well, I mean, Ellen, he, she's kind of like my main weaver in the studio at the moment. And she's, you know, very restrained and very sophisticated and very kind of minimal, which is kind of the opposite of me. And I think that's been really complimentary. And, and that's, again, what I found has been really useful to grow the business is to actually, um, you know, let, let yourself be kind of, let yourself grow by listening to other people's yeah. ideas, yeah. whether it be your customers' ideas or commissioning, you know, commissioning a, a collection of designs for a company. You've got to understand what they're looking for and what their ideas are. And, but then also retain your own integrity and authenticity about that, that you appreciate it yourself as well. See, the reason I asked that question is that many years ago, and, and because we're talking a bit about industrial design and, and interior design, I remember seeing Mark Newson years before he um, was working with Apple when he was just doing little plastic roto-moulded yeah. things for Magis and stuff like that. Uh, he, he was talking about working with um, Italian manufacturers and often they have a kind of sense of the artisan about them, Italian manufacturers. And he was saying you have to be really careful with what you sent them because they would always, always try and just adapt. Somebody in the, in the factory would try and just, mm. just tweak it a little bit. And I'm just wondering with the craftspeople that, that you guys have worked for or with, um, whether they've brought things to, to your designs. Karina, can, can we pick up on that? Yes, uh, I think everyone's very much, well, as I said before, it's very much a collaborative process and, and we, you know, we discuss the designs and work on them together and, and we meet throughout the process. Um, what's interesting is we, when we did one of the, our products uh, called Circus Lamp, we worked with a um, Metal com um, or a spinning company um, up in uh, Yorkshire, and um, we had created uh, these pieces were basically hands hand spun over timber molds, and through that, which was, I suppose, I guess you could call it more of a defect really to the process, but because we had laminated pieces of timber to create the mold, it had created a really beautiful grain imprint onto the metal shade, um, which ended up really adding to the product and making it look much more handmade than the process would normally lead you to believe. Um, and then later on, it was a collaboration with a UK and London-based company uh, called Innermost, who then um, picked up actually the product for production. So from initially our own first craft-based production, uh, it became a mass-produced product, which is now so sold worldwide. and. Um, we lost that kind of craft element, which was actually initially, I suppose, a defect. And perhaps somebody else would have said to the craftsperson that 
you know, this was not acceptable, it was to the design and so forth, but we actually felt it really added to the product, which then obviously in mass production could not be replicated because in mass production you spin over a metal form and therefore you lose the definition or the texture that is created because one person is hand spinning and therefore obviously the level of the pressure varies um, and therefore creates the lovely ridges in the shade. Mm. So Brompton Bikes, I, I went to Brompton to the factory and um, they have a, a poster of all the different guys that braze the, the parts of the bike together. They have uh, a poster of their brazing style so they know each, who made each bike by the way they've brazed the, the various joints. And the ones that they do that they don't paint, they just varnish. There's only two of the guys there who are allowed to make those because their brazing is good enough. The rest of them they're not allowed to, they get painted over. Anyway, um, I got into that, it's just an anecdote I had. Um, Fiona, craftsman tweaking your designs. Is this um, something that happens? It's, it's more from a sort of materiality point of view and the fact weight, we've had a big issue with the weight. I tend to like metal, bronze, <laughs> anything that's heavy, <laughs> lots of wood. So we've had to alter thicknesses um, and I'm very much about my little shadow gaps and all about the thicknesses. <laughs> so we, we have had to alter the thickness, especially in the cast bronze um, and certain materials that didn't, didn't work together. And you know, I wanted, for instance, this chair here that Rosie sat in, I wanted that whole chair upholstered at the top. Mm. And we tried so many times in, in, in the workshop to upholster all of those sort of awkward angles um, and it, it didn't work. So then it evolved with the little backrest instead of the whole top being upholstered. So it, that's what I said before, design is evolution. And actually, you know, in the beginning, you sometimes think, well, that's not how I imagined it. And, but actually, it's all, it always ends up being for the better. And mm. you end up with a more refined piece and a more considered piece. Very good. Um, we've been talking for about 25 minutes. I'm eager, and I can see you're eager too, just by looking at you, to get you involved. Um, so don't, 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 don't grimace like that, it'll be okay. <laughs> so what I thought I might do is come amongst you and see if you have any questions. I'm looking at hands before I get off my stool. Oh, come on, don't be shy. Somebody break the seal. Corinne, thank you so much. You had a notebook and everything. I knew it'd be you. If you could let us know, if you could let us know who you are and what um, you do. I'm Corinne Julius. I'm a journalist and a curator. Um, I think it's quite interesting, though, because um, designers, certain designers, I mean, industrial designers, I trained as an interior designer at the Royal College, and craft at that point was something that was really dirty and something you didn't have anything to do with. And it's taken quite a long time. People at the college took, who were using craft to design, um, particularly in design products, didn't actually want to admit the word craft. And going to the craft council at the time, I would say, you should be using those guys in design products who are doing furniture. They're craftspeople. You should be talking to them because they are craftspeople. And the craftspeople were saying, no, 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 they're kind of designers. It's had a radical sea change, although I'm afraid I think that the RCA has actually gone back on itself because design products is now going much more towards industrial design. But how do you see things panning out over the next five or six years? Do you think that the distinctions between the two will become totally false? I'm just kind of thinking in industrial design, which is actually very different. There is something about having designs that just make life better for people. And there has been the thing of having ego design. What do you think craft adds to that mix? I think the word 
it's the word craft that you have to read into. It's never going to be mass production if it is craft. Essentially, it is artisanal, and I think that's, like I said before, I think we are going back to actually having something different and not the mass production. And there are now is a very close bond. I think what's been nice is I've had, you know, been lucky enough to work with high-end residential clients, which have allowed me the budget and the time to, to go and work with craft people and maybe, you know, bring their work into a realm that it hasn't it hasn't been featured in before. And I think the two are now working more closely together and I think over the next few years craft is is really is really moving up because you know like we were saying before you know Tom Dixon it's very it's all sort of mass-produced industrial design and people now want they want that individuality and they want that true innovator and they want to be able to see understand the person and their history and who is creating these items it, it, I think it goes back to the story Although Tom started as a metal basher originally and then, and then kind of moved in a different direction. I mean, I wonder if, if this uh, current interest with craft uh, is anything more than a, a fashion. Do you think I don't it will think move so. on or do you think it's here to stay? I think it's here to stay. I, I think it's here to stay, really, because I think people increasingly want to have something that's individual and it's to their personal taste and it's, it's got. Um, memories or feelings attached and it's, it's specifically the I guess the commissioning process is something incredibly personal you build a relationship with your maker or designer and um, you, you have a contact and therefore you have a very different attachment to the piece that ultimately will live in your home or in in your commercial space but ultimately the story it creates it tells is the process of how it has uh, being conceived um, through meetings with the maker and and being part of the production process, which is a very different um, personal attachment to something you would maybe just choose in a store and then find in your uh, friend's house. You know, I think also with um, like the internet and social media and how easy it is to tell a story through film or video. Um, you know, it's very exciting for people, consumers or designers, to actually understand how things are made. And you can tell that story quite easily now. And so, and, and I think it's very exciting for people to see the hands on the objects, to see the processes, to see the machinery involved. And so I think it's going to become more and more important. And if people don't have that story or that support to their product, I think that people will be less interested. And I think it, I mean, it's already started filtering down into the high street, and that's when you know that something really has become very successful on a, on a sort of bespoke level and a high-end level when it starts to reach the high street, and you've got the main retailers who are trying to recreate artisanal product on mass production. Well, you get handmade coffee now, right? This is what happens. <laughs> Starbucks, McDonald's, everybody. Yeah. Um, uh, I feel we've kind of we've broken the seal. We've had the difficult first question. I'm now after the slightly less awkward second question. Uh, anybody got a hand they want to put up? Oh, Adrian, thank you so much. Um, Adrian Sassoon here, and I've been selling handmade objects for about 25 years. Um, we're talking about links between design and craft. So 25 years ago, we'd be talking about the difference between craft and art. Um, but everyone got bored of that. But everyone still enjoys art, they enjoy craft, and nowadays enjoy design. 
And I think there's an awful lot of cloudiness about people just getting on with what they do best in different ways and then trying to label it. And um, one of the things that's been amusing me recently is the Crafts Council says that in England we produce billions of pounds worth of craft products, don't we? What's the statistic on that? 3.4 billion, which I'm always amazed about because we sell a lot, but we don't really contribute that much to that figure. So I'm just wondering what on earth it is. And 25 years ago, it had all been art or craft. Now it's design or craft, but everyone's doing something. And I just think it's really interesting hearing what you are all doing from you. And thank you very much for that. Not so much a question, more of a, more of a, more of a comment. Okay. Well, we can take comments too. Would you like to comment back? You can comment back. Okay. Thank you. I'm Rosie. I'm the director of the Crafts Council, so I'd better respond to that. I think it's really interesting what you were saying, Fiona, about the way in which you're revitalising some of those traditional crafts in a different sort of way. And one of the things that we've been doing at the Crafts Council is to demonstrate how craft skills can be seen in a whole variety of different sectors. It's not only about the beautiful objects that, for example, you sell, Adrian, but it's also about how craft skills are used in many different types of sectors and and what that figure represents is the way in which craft skills are used in many different industries and some people will recognize these examples and I use them quite regularly so for example there are um, some glass artists based down in Cornwall um, in the middle of nowhere and they made all of the glass um, goblets for the Harry Potter films for example and if you think about the Royal School of Needlework, they made um, all, they did all the beautiful embroidery on the Duchess of Cambridge's wedding dress. So those are really good examples, I think, of where craft skills are being used within other industries in other sectors. And what we're trying to say at the Crafts Council is all of this has value. It's really important that we sustain makers because often they're very hidden because you've all talked about makers, craftspeople but they're often hidden because they're not always the people who are then represented as being the creative. And I think for us, it's about saying the makers are heroes. They are the people that are doing these amazing things and we need to sustain that sector. Excellent. I always like it when the audience starts arguing amongst itself. It's always a sign of a good talk. Now, do we have any other uh, comments or questions? Preferably questions, possibly. Ah, coming over to you. Hang on, running like a gazelle. Hi, my name is Saul. Um, I just wanted to ask a question in regards to comparison. Say people making cars going from fuel to electric, trying to be ethical, lower carbon footprint. Is there any kind of vision with craftsmanship in products you create year, year in, year out? Yeah, already existing products. I think that's an interesting question. Who would like to pick that up? Margot. Well, I think... Um, I think everything, every, every fabric which I get woven, I try to make sure there is some sort of ethical story or good reason for making that fabric or for working with those people. Um, whether it be um, to support a British mill or whether it be to support an amazing group of hand weavers in India. Um, and I think I definitely need to learn more about the different fibres and the impact of those because I get very excited about mixing up all the fibres and putting lots of different fibres together, but the consequences of all of those. So I think, um, you know, everyone, whatever industry you're working in, you've got to have a sort of conscious and a, a consideration for how your own work can evolve. Um, and that's where I'm at at the moment with it. 
we only produce everything in Britain, so we only work with makers who are local, um, and uh, we only work with natural materials as well, so predominantly timber and leathers and glass and... Fiona, <laughs> do, do you want to pick that um, up? Is, I would say in, in interior design it is quite difficult to be ethical, you know, we, we have clients who are very demanding, who want to ship items from all over the world, so your carbon footprint on shipping for a start is not great. Um, with our furniture brand, yes, we do predominantly produce in the UK, as I said before, and that is very important to me. Um, sometimes we use eco-friendly paints on the wall. Um, I like to use natural fabrics where possible, but it, it, it's not easy, is, is the answer to that. And um, the furniture industry is notorious for, for not being very eco-friendly. There are worse industries, that said. Um, now, uh, anybody else? We've got we, third, fourth, fourth question we're on now. Yes, Daniela. Well, I think you know what I want to talk about. No, I've no idea. No, it's Informers. always about collect. Uh, <laughs> um, and just a twofold uh, question about uh, the fair coming up and um, how you feel galleries and dealers uh, fit within. I mean, we've been talking about sort of one section of, of the market uh, or maybe what your, what your desires are when you go to the fair. Is that OK? Can I have two? Uh, uh, what, yeah. what, what people come All to right. the fair to, to, <laughs> to see? What, what do you think? Uh, uh, what, what would you want to come and have a look at with, with Collect? I think people are always looking for the next thing, aren't they? Whether it's a, a new design process, how it's been made, um, a new person, a new brand. Um, and, you know, it's, these trade fairs are such a good um, platform for smaller brands to be exposed to a larger market and also to sit alongside the larger brands as well. Um, so that's very exciting. And also when it's niche and it's beautiful product, it's... Um, it's hard not to enjoy. <laughs> Margot, will you be going to collect? What are you most well, I think I definitely to? will because, um, like over the, as I said earlier, my ideal way of working is making slowly for several years until it's finally realised into something. And one of my biggest inspirations are the Bauhaus weavers, and you know they they would make a piece of fabric just. Um, to, as a piece of art, the most beautiful fabric they could make, but then they also designed for industry. And so I always you know, aspire to that. And um, since I've, my business has become more and more commercial, it's allowed me to spend more and more time making kind of one-off hand-woven pieces. So um, I would like to come to see what people are doing in textiles and how they're selling their textiles and if people are appreciating them um, and the way that you know, they're presented. I think it's important also for these brands to see the end user and actually have a chance to interface with a potential person that you know is going to buy their product you know because often if it's um, maybe through a gallery or online or something it, you don't know where it goes and also to get instant feedback as well and you know maybe honest feedback on your product. Corinna, is Collect on your uh, your particular design radar? Well, yeah, we're definitely uh, we're definitely attending. I think with regards to the I guess gallery aspects for I guess our background in terms of um, designer versus craft, I really feel that in in recent years that galleries have very much um, opened up the design world to the art world and. 
and have, with regards to, um, I guess, uh, the, the trend of design art pieces, very much, um, yeah, uh, opened up a new client base potentially to uh, potentially a more traditional uh, design studio with a product design background has suddenly had the opportunity to enter a very different world and very different market. Something that's quite interesting. Okay, we are running a little low on time. Does anybody have anything they need to get off their chest? If so, raise a hand. Oh, yes, okay. I just um, round up about Collector. I'm Aishin. Um, I work with our corporate partners at the Crafts Council and we're working with um, Fiona this year at Collect and they are our VIP sponsors so they're going to be um, taking over our VIP room. So I wondered Fiona maybe to round up on Collect if you can give us an idea of your vision for the VIP room this year. Um, pretty much like where you are now. <laughs> I want to transport a little bit of the industrial versus super luxe into Collect. The Snapdragon Gallery is quite similar actually with the, the, very, the structural beams, um, very clean layout, so it's a nice platform for our furniture and our textures to really have a voice within that space. So um, we hope we will be a nice addition to everybody else that is there. Very good. I think we're going to call time unless anybody really wants to get something to say no. No. Going. Grant, there's someone over there. Well, OK, but I was going to introduce Rosie. I, I read your script, and I was, that's what I was going to do. <laughs> in that case, in that case, I'll hand over to Rosie Greenleys. Rosie, it's all yours. Thank you. <laughs> um, good evening, everybody. I just wanted to thank you all very, very much for coming this evening, and uh, to thank Fiona for very kindly hosting us in this amazing space. And this is, as we said, is the third of um, three salons that we've, we've run in advance of Collect. Um, and I'm very, very much looking forward to welcoming you all to Collect in a couple of weeks' time. This is our major event of the year. It's an international fair. You will see the most fantastic craft work there, the very finest museum quality work. And, of course, it is there for you to buy as well. And that's the point of the fair, is to encourage people to support makers and, and commercial galleries to show their work and to, um, to um, take those works into, into collections, both public and individual. There's lots of other fantastic things going on there as well. Fiona, as we know, is going to be um, dressing the VIP room and is our main sponsor there for, for that particular space, which we're really delighted about. And thank you very much. We're looking forward to it. Um, we also have exhibitions uh, and we have them a fantastic auction as well. We're raising funds to reopen our space at 44A Pentonville Row, our, our headquarters, so to speak. And we're going to have some fantastic works um, for auction at the fair as well, including people like Edmund Duval and Grayson Perry. So I do hope you'll be able to come along and join us. It's from the 2nd to the 6th of February and the VIP reception is on the 1st. If you haven't received an invitation, please do come and speak to us at the end and we'll make sure that you have one. And finally, I'd like to thank all of the speakers, to Corinna, Margot and Fiona and of course to our grant for um, very successfully chairing as per always, yes, our grant, yes, yes. So do stay, we've got more drink and the, the idea is to have an opportunity to chat and um, discuss some of the things we're talking about this evening as well as other things, so do please enjoy yourselves and thank you very much. <laughs>